Welcome to the War on Wildlife podcast, hosted by Charlie Moores and Ruth PC. Episode 2. The Hunting Act and Fox Hunting. Weeds and Extremists. And you're just exercising the hounds, you say. Okay then. Let's do it. Welcome to the second episode in our series of podcasts looking at the war on wildlife. My name is Charlie Moores. I'm a podcaster, a birdwatcher, a campaigner, and I work for Lush. And I'm Ruth PC. I'm a filmmaker and campaigner as well who also works for Lush. Charlie, can I call myself a podcaster now, please? Yes, you can call yourself. In fact, I think any of us can call ourselves whatever we want to be as long as we're taking part fighting this war on wildlife. Um, exactly. You can be anything. It's a team. You are on team podcast now, Ruth. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> the series is inspired in part by the Manifesto for Wildlife, which was put together by Chris Packham. That used the hashtag War on Wildlife, so we've uh, we've just co-opted that, and our work for Lush. And in our first episode, we looked at driven grouse shooting and pheasant shooting, as well as the persecution of raptors, such as hen harriers, the team wild justice, and a whole load of other things related to the war on wildlife. Yeah, and we included two short recordings. Um, basically, we're asking conservationists, activists, campaigners, and people listening to this, we're going to find a way to make sure all your voices are heard. Yes, get involved, get involved. Get, get involved. Uh, the two short recordings were, one was with Chris Packham himself, and the explorer Bruce Parry. We wanted their take on the war on wildlife, so we asked them the question, is there a war on wildlife and what one piece of advice would you give to help tackle it? That's been a really interesting project so far, hasn't it? It really has, and of course that's exactly what we're going to be discussing over all of these episodes, is what does this term war on wildlife mean to us? And I think it has different meanings for different people, and clearly some people don't think we should be using the term war, other people feel very strongly that we should, and it's really interesting to discuss that and what it means to us as well. I really like the fact that some people are made slightly uncomfortable by the phrase, because it means they're having to think about it. And we do need to think about there's a war on wildlife. Yeah, we do. These are issues that involve a lot of thought and a lot of action. And if we don't think about them, we're never going to be able to act in a way that's going to make a difference. Yeah. And that's what this is all about. Us making a difference. All of us making a difference. You joining team podcast or writers, filmmakers, the people who go along to events. You know, we can't all be, we can't all be Chris Packham or Mark Avery or Ruth Tingay, but we need everybody on board, anyone who's concerned about this. We certainly do. And these short inserts that we've been recording are totally well worth hearing. And um, Charlie's been putting them all, or will be putting them all online separately so that you can just take a look or take a listen to the three or four minutes each of them will be. Yeah, because they're quite short. And they're quite short. You can listen to quite a few. And I, as we said, it's amazing the, the varied response we're getting. But yeah. people are really thinking about this subject and that's what's important. So episode two, um, we are looking at fox hunting and it is illegal to hunt foxes with dogs or hounds, of course. And we're going to uh, combine that with looking at value-based language. And what we mean by that is terms that suggest how we as humans value or put worth or imply worthlessness onto our wildlife. Yeah, terms like vermin and pests, and we'll get into some of that as well. Um, we briefly touched on the importance of language and propaganda. So, for instance, talking about the inglorious 12th to mark the start of the driven garrison season rather than the glorious 12th, for example. Exactly, and also how sectors or lobbyists within the shooting industry have turned to phrases like control or manage or balance to essentially, in our opinion, greenwash some of their activities. Yeah, and you wanted to add the term conservation to that as well, don't you? That's, I that's been do. taken by it's been hijacked. every goddamn hunting and shooting organisation going. That's something they're all conservationists. We're also going to look at the terms that are used to belittle campaigners and activists, so like bunny hugger, tree hugger, snowflake, which seems to have come over from America. I actually love that one, but also your personal favourite. Yeah, extremist. <laughs> extremist, God damn it! So we'll look at that as well. Yes. But essentially, if you disagree with shooting and hunting interests, you are inevitably labelled an extremist these days. 
So fox hunting, value-based language and greenwashing are all related, as we will explain. And of course, all of this is definitely part of the overall war on wildlife. And especially part of the ongoing war on the poor old red fox. But we're going to get to that very shortly. Before then, we must ask, Charlie, was there any feedback from our first episode? Well, it's only been out for a little time. We're, we're having to record this quite quickly because our schedules are so, <laughs> so hectic. Um, but yes, uh, we mentioned goals in the last one because of this headline that you'd seen and quite rightly f- reacted in real fury to psychopathic seagulls. And... Um, Tina Lindsay, who, who we both know, said you kind of skirted over that. And it was because we dropped it in the last minute, didn't we? It was kind of the headline on the day, the morning that we came in to make the first podcast. And she said, can you not talk a little more about why gulls are where they are and why they've been called pests and vermin? Absolutely. So I'm going to leave that to you because you're a real <laughs> gull fan. I love gulls. I love gulls so much. And of course, one of the reasons for that is because they're an, a bird that's very easy to see. So you get to see lots of interesting behaviours and you get to really get to know their personalities and their their intelligence because they are incredibly intelligent animals but I could profuse about how much I love goals for ages but I won't I'm going to move on to why I get to see them so easily and that's because they are living in our towns and cities but the reason they're living in our towns and cities is because our towns and cities are in their habitat we have encroached into the areas where they live traditionally goals lived along coastal areas where there was a great supply of fish and crustaceans and mollusks and things and now we've kind of moved our towns closer and closer into these areas we've built on areas where they would have traditionally nested Um, we've built over areas where they would have traditionally found food and these buildings themselves have provided the perfect habitat for them to nest in to a goal a building is a sea cliff Exactly. The reason they nest on cliffs is because they're avoiding land predators. A building provides that perfect space for them. Gulls, like like any other animal, they wouldn't stay if there wasn't a food source. And there is a plentiful supply of food in towns and cities. And it's not because of the gulls. It's not because of other animals. It's because of one species who cannot help themselves making a mess and throwing away food wherever they go. And that one species is us. Exactly. People do throw, I've seen it many, many, many a time, people throwing their chips into the sky to watch girls catch them and stuff. And of course, this is just encouraging them to move away from a harder food source to a really easy one. And actually, while we're on that, if you really want to get a good view of a goal, the best place to go and see them and study them in any great length is a landfill site because it's full of our rubbish, full of old bits of food, and they flock there in hundreds and hundreds in order to feed and find food. And they literally are feeding on our waste. I think this is a global statistic. I haven't actually looked at this for a while, but I'm fairly convinced 30% of all the food produced around the world is thrown away before it's eaten. Then we're blaming birds and animals that are making the use of that food that's gone to waste. It's an easy source of food for them. Why not give it to them? Yeah, so as far as we're concerned, all they're doing is reacting to what we have done to the habitat and what we have done to the food source. Completely, completely. So I think more love for goals and stop throwing chips if you don't want them to steal your food. Yeah, it's learned behaviour. They're intelligent animals like most animals are, in fact, far more intelligent than we give them credit for. Exactly. So that's covered goals. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, More than. (laughs) (laughs) Our first episode went um, live to coincide with the Lush homepage takeover. Kudos to Lush. 12 hours on the 12th of August, they took down the Lush homepage, which is normally where all the the sales are made, and dedicated it to the war on wildlife, which looks to have gone down pretty well. It certainly has. And that's such an important topic and as you say, absolute kudos to Lush for doing that. Yeah, so that was articles, videos, podcasts. Um, all of those, of course, have been archived, uh, have been saved, if you like, and they will be going on the dedicated War on Wildlife website, which we did say in the last episode was being built. It is still being built. As I said, we're, we're doing this quite soon after the first <laughs> one. But that will come, and all that information will be there and available to us. 
The podcast also came out just before Hen Harrier Day 2019, which was something that we both attended. Yeah, that was at Cartington Water in Derbyshire, wasn't it? I, I, that was a fantastic event. Oh, absolutely it was fantastic event. brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. We just gave kudos to Lush and I think we should give kudos to Set and Trent Water for um, allowing the event to be held there because I believe I was told on the day they came under quite a bit of pressure from shooting interest who said you really shouldn't be doing this um, and it's going to send out the wrong message and there's going to be trouble and which was ridiculous going back to that extremist exactly thing. yeah of course because if we're all extremists we're going to be doing extreme things well let me tell you no one shot anything no one trapped anything and no one poisoned anything which of course is very different to what started happening the next day yeah because we were there on august the 11th august the 12th the inglorious 12th was the start of the slaughter of half a million red grouse I should just say that half a million red grouse aren't shot on one day. It's over the course of a no, season, no, but still right. quite important to pick up. Um, and one of the important things to come out of Hen Harriday, and again, this is relevant to this, is that um, change takes time because people are saying, well, this is the fifth year. What's actually changed? Social change, public attitudes, undermining entrenched language takes time. You, know, you can't come in and expect these things to happen straight away. It does take time, but what is happening, it's now in the mainstream. Exactly. It totally, totally is. I mean, more and more um, as cases of raptor persecution are coming up, they're hitting the mainstream news. People are starting to learn what a hen harrier is. A lot of people didn't know, probably a lot of people still don't know, but it's becoming more mainstream language. It's definitely, definitely getting there. And things like the issues affecting climate change and so forth are becoming more common terms that are being used. Yeah, and we are going to make the war on wildlife a term that everyone is using. Yes, That's we definitely our are. This is our goal. This is our goal. Um, one of the speakers at Hen Day, and there were some fantastic speakers. Oh, I mean, every, everyone was just brilliant, was um, Jill Lewis. Jill is a multi-award winning children's author and her young heroes and heroines share the pages of her books with moon bears, um, gorillas, and of particular interest to you and me, Birds of Prey. Yeah, exactly. Her books, Sky Dancer and Eagle Warrior, are both unflinching books looking at wildlife crime on shooting estates. Yeah, they're really good books. I interviewed Jill, it was only a week actually before our first podcast came out. That's online on Lush Player. Uh, why are we mentioning all this? Because we're just about to hear Jill Lewis answering that question. Is there a war on wildlife and what piece of advice would you give to help tackle it? It's quite a strong term, isn't it? Depends on your definition um, of war. But certainly the natural world, the wild world, is definitely under attack, whether or not it's from individuals in wildlife crime shooting a hen harrier or a golden eagle um, or chasing down a red fox. It's under attack from planners and from government who are eradicating vast areas of habitats. Um, so it could be construed to be a war, but it's a war that if we don't stop this attack on wildlife, then no one wins because our lives are dependent upon the natural world for the clean air, for water, for food, for medicine, for everything. Um, so it's something actually we need to fight for. We need to sort of fight for the wild and we need to fight for nature. And so the question is, what can be done about it? How do we help the natural world and I think these days it's to do nothing is to become complicit really in its loss in nature's nature's loss I think we've all have a responsibility to take an action some forms of actions can be raising awareness about an issue telling more people about an issue because then we get this groundswell of people which then will want to change things they can be small changes on an every everyday level um, or bigger changes counteracting local councils if they're planning to chop down trees or take away habitats but I think we need everybody needs to have a part to play um, to stop this attack on the natural world it's it's everybody has a has, has a role and I think it, it's inspirational to see um, the youth climate strike that's been started by Greta Thunberg all around the world and I think that gives a great hope for the future you know we are running out of time but it means that change is possible 
and we've all got to come together to help make that change happen. Jill Lewis, thank you very much. Yeah, big thanks to Jill there. And one of the key points that she raised there was to do nothing is to be complicit. Yeah, absolutely. We have to understand this problem. We have to do something about it. By letting, yeah, by letting it just slide, we are becoming part of the problem. And actually, I really, really, really strongly believe that, that there are so many issues associated with this war on wildlife. There is bound to be one aspect of it that is of particular interest to you. And if you, and by you I mean everybody, if everybody did something that they believed in towards the thing that they are most passionate about, however small that yeah. one thing was. That's going exactly would, back to that team thing. It would make a massive Are you a podcaster now? Of course you're a podcaster now. You're also a filmmaker. Part of you're the team. You're also part <laughs> of the team. Team War on Wildlife. Um, one of the things that really, really hacks me off is fox hunting. I believe that is part of this war on wildlife. Massively so. I think there's absolutely no question there. It's a disgusting thing that takes place still, even now. Yeah, it's banned. It's an illegal so-called traditional so-called sport. Now, you could say it's just a day out riding your horse through open country with your friends and no one I know would object to that. Fine, go do that. Don't chase foxes. No, it's unsporting and it's cruel to use the same horses to ride through countryside to hunt down and rip apart foxes. And foxes are ripped apart. There's plenty of video evidence to support that. It's absolutely, can I just say, that is just the most horrific way to die. This is an animal that's related to a dog. Yeah. I love dogs. I'm sure everybody knows that I love dogs now because I keep bringing it up. <laughs> but they're amazing, amazing animals. And foxes are so closely related to them. And to watch footage of, and God forbid, to see firsthand one of these animals being ripped apart by a pack of hounds is just absolutely horrific the cruelty behind that is just unacceptable i have to say as well the same with hair coursing when hairs are ripped apart the trauma hairs have been looked at by vets and the internal trauma caused by a pack of hounds grabbing a fleeing animal it's it's appalling um i mentioned something to you that you didn't know about this called blooding oh yeah it's a ritual you hadn't heard about I've before, never heard of this. No, not at all. Another thing that really angers me about this is the way hunts glorify the death of an animal. And they've got all these kind of weird rituals. And one of them is this blooding thing. They take the blood from the fox and it's smeared onto the face, the forehead or the cheeks of a child or an initiate. So someone going on the hunt for the first time. It's a, it's a gruesome parody of baptism and it's called blooding and it's to get people used to the sight of the blood and to make them feel part of the hunt and you do it to a child you know they're with trusted adults they become blooded into fox hunting that's just disgusting it is disgusting disgusting. for me it's not just about the death of the fox though and there are hunts and i know of hunts because i was talking to a friend of mine who took part quite recently in a hunt that hasn't killed a fox but they have been chasing foxes through the countryside even if they haven't been killing them because because once the hunting horn blows that's a signal to many foxes in the countryside to start running and of course it's that chase that causes them a great amount of distress and I've been unfortunate enough to find myself in the countryside whilst hunts have been taking place and I've seen foxes come past with the look of absolute terror on their faces that I wouldn't wish upon anything. Yeah, I completely agree. Now, we're talking about this as though fox hunting is still something that's going on, but it's illegal, Well, it it is still going on, but it is definitely illegal. That's because of legislation passed for England and Wales in 2004. That came into force in February 2005. That is 14 years and seven months ago. I find it unbelievable that it's so recent, that it's so recent within our history that that this absolutely horrific activity became illegal how how is it so recent it's been seen as a tradition a countryside tradition we've been brought up to believe it's tradition we've been brought up to believe that shooting pheasants is tradition we've been brought up to believe a lot of things are tradition and we've never questioned it part of the the role of this podcast i think is to ask us to question things but even though this is illegal it's still a tradition that is carrying on now yeah it's been reinvented there's now something called trail hunting it's worth noting that trail hunting 
didn't exist before the passing of the Hunting Act in 2004. And trail hunting is supposedly perfectly legal and it supposedly has nothing to do with hunting animals. The hunt supposedly, I'm going to use that word again, follows a scent trail, which is supposedly fox urine. But you can't get hold of fox urine here in the UK. And according to Freedom of Information requests, there has been none imported into the UK for years. So this is a trail laid in advance of the hunt going out of a substance you can't buy here and hasn't been imported here. And these trails, so-called, have led to what's called hunt havoc. And there's plenty of pictures online of hounds going across railway lines. Hounds have been killed on railway lines going across main roads. And again, hounds have been killed by cars going across main roads. Uh, Hounds have even been seen going through people's gardens and attacking pets. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's a good catch-all term, hunt havoc. Um, Nobody, nobody outside of the hunts themselves seriously that trail hunting is anything other than an insurance that hunts are using to keep the paraphernalia of fox hunting and by that i mean the hunt societies the hunts themselves the horses the hounds etc in a state of readiness for when they think the hunting act is going to be overturned in parliament that is not going to happen i think we have to be aware that it might I don't think it will happen, no, but I think we, ha- we we can't become complacent. That's probably the phrase I'm looking for. No, and the reason for that is because there are big lobbyists out there like the Countryside Alliance that continue to fight yeah. for this. And um, if you remember, David Cameron brought it up and said he was in favour of fox hunting. And Theresa May even did it um, in, in the election of 2017 said she she wouldn't mind if a vote came back and it caused absolute mayhem for the Conservative Party. And having said this, a lot of people online say it's the Conservatives that are a problem. Most modern Conservative MPs would not vote to repeal the Hunting Act. That no. A, they know it's toxic and B, they like animals. Exactly. And in 2017, the British people were surveyed on whether they would continue to support the ban on fox hunting. And the result was overwhelming, with 85% thinking fox hunting should remain prohibited. And that is the largest margin ever recorded. Yeah, in, in that kind of a poll. Absolutely. Yet, in 2018, the hunt season, again in quotes, alone saw 550 reports of illegal hunting, though these figures only represent known incidents. Which just means it's the tip of an iceberg. Like rat persecution. I I believe so, yeah. By early 2019, of course we're recording this in in the summer when the fox hunting season has has finished, by early 2019 at least 21 foxes had been killed by hunts and 151 incidents of illegal hunting were reported since the season began the previous November. Crikey. And something that I wasn't actually 100% clear about until until the research for this is that trail hunting and drag hunting are two very different things. Trail hunting and drag hunting are totally different. Drag hunting has been established for for a long time. It's well established. Animals are never chased in a drag hunt. In fact, I've I've talked to people, investigators, hunt monitors who've been out in the field. Um, They've been sent to drag hunts by accident by, you know, members of the public saying they can see hunting. And they've actually witnessed foxes who have been startled by the dogs, and that's understandable, charging past the pack of drag hounds who haven't even looked at the animal. They've not even reacted to the fox going past because hounds have to be trained to kill foxes. It's perfectly legal, perfectly respectable and should not be confused in any way with with, um, trail hunting. And it's a great alternative, surely, for people who want to get out there and carry on the tradition of riding their horses around the countryside with a pack of dogs. And uh, if you're interested in learning a bit more about this, there was a fantastic report came out in 2015 but from IFOR, the International Fund for Animal Welfare, called Trail of Lies. And they concluded, and this is based on reports from experienced investigators, that nine times out of ten there is no evidence of a trail being set. And it's worth also mentioning um, hunts need land to hunt over. There's been a lot of controversy about the National Trust allowing trail hunting on their land. And were the National Trust to ban trail hunting, which doesn't exist, 
in reality, there are several hunts that would have to shut down immediately. Without the land to hunt over, hunts cannot possibly hunt. A lot of landowners are now refusing hunts permission to go on. If, if it was drag hunts, I'm sure there'd be absolutely no problem. It's trail hunting and more and more people are seeing trail hunting as a lie and seeing it as part of this war on wildlife that we're talking about. Good for the people who've got land and who don't let hunting, that's all I can say. Definitely good for them. Um, Part of the argument hunts use, and this is taking us back to this um, language thing, is that they are not only traditional and useful, but they're demanded by landowners as a service to control vermin. Wars are always justified. Someone will always justify that war, and that includes the war on wildlife. And this is the way hunts are trying to justify fox hunting. Before we look at that, you're looking at me sceptically here. Go on, go on. (laughs) I want to have a quick word about weeds. Weeds? Yes, this is relevant. Okay. Just clear your mind. If I say weed, what comes into mind? It's something that I need to pull out of my garden because I've been told to. Exactly. If you are an advertiser flogging some incredibly powerful toxin that was originally designed as an industrial herbicide, you want millions and millions of householders with millions and millions of gardens to spray your toxin on plant. You are now trying to convince everyone that that little yellow flower that emerges in the early spring that is an absolute lifeline for emerging pollinators is a weed this is value-based language and this little yellow flower that you're referring to is one of my favorites and that's a dandelion it's a dandelion and it's a useful thing i feed them to my tortoises yeah <laughs> and they're one of the first plants to come up this is an early spring flower i found this advert by Flymo, and a lot of people will know them as the people who sell lawnmowers and i'm quoting this advert because i saw this and i I couldn't believe it. This so perfectly sums up the idea of value-based language and a war being waged on our wildlife. This advert said, weeding can be one of the most annoying activities in maintaining our gardens and the unwanted pests have a tendency to grow back if untreated. Our gardens are full of them, but identifying all weeds correctly instead of flowers, can be a difficult task. Now, that's an actual quote. And I will tell you why it is so difficult, Flymo, because weeds are flowers. Beautiful, beautiful flowers. They're just native flowers that are growing naturally in our gardens. I cannot believe that they even refer to them as pests as well. I just find that unbelievable. Well, you you look at these adverts with um, Roundup, particularly every spring. They are selling glyphosate, which is an incredibly powerful toxin. And yet millions of people have it in their homes and are spraying it on what we have been told are weeds that our forefathers, our our ancestors knew as wild flowers. And yeah, and these, these weeds or flowers as we call them, are absolutely beautiful. There's nothing less beautiful about a dandelion compared to, say, a tulip or anything like that. They're intricate and they provide such such an important food source for our native insects. Value-based language. There's a quote, I'm sure people listening to this will have heard of this quote, weeds are simply plants growing in the wrong place. Weeds are simply plants growing in the wrong place. I always wondered he said it, so I looked it up, if you will indulge me a second. It was um, a guy called George Washington Carver, who was an American agricultural scientist and inventor. He actively promoted alternative crops to cotton and methods to prevent soil depletion. He was a leading environmentalist. He died in January 1943, so this idea has been around a long time. A really forward thinker there. Yeah, he really was. And that year, President Franklin Roosevelt dedicated $30,000 for the George Washington Carver National Monument. And that was the first national monument dedicated to an African-American and the first to honour someone other than a president. Carver saw through the propaganda and the lobbying all those years ago, and we need to as well. We certainly do, and thanks for getting in some good facts there, Charlie. I love love it.
Thanks. Uh, which brings us back to foxes. Of um, course, yes. And they're a natural part of UK biodiversity. A native mammal. Uh, one of the few predators we have left in our denuded and nature-depleted country. It's worth saying that these na- that these natural predators are actually relatively small and pretty weak animals. Every silly season there are reports of foxes coming in and attacking children. They didn't even like attacking cats. I mean, no. you know, because cats have got claws and foxes aren't dumb. They aren't going to get into a fight with an animal that's as big or as strong as they are. No, and they're definitely not capable of taking a child away. They are definitely not capable of taking a child away. You know, you have to wonder why the media joins in with all of this. Again, it's down to this value-based language. It's unquestioning. We have been told, and I wish I had a pound or a euro or it, dollar or whatever the currency but every time i have been told or i have heard or i have read someone saying with absolute confidence that foxes are vermin yet you ask them what does that officially mean and i bet they don't know i wrote down here from hansard which is the official record of debates in the in the british and some commonwealth parliaments in 2003, Lord Selsden, and perhaps I should have looked up who Lord Selsden is, but I, I didn't. But Lord Selsden asked Her Majesty's Government which mammals and other animals are classified as vermin. And Lord Whitty responded that there is no definition of the term vermin in UK law. I can't believe that. It's thrown about so much, surely. It's become totally common parlance, isn't it? He said, Lord Whitty, in such a situation, the Oxford Dictionary definition should be applied. This is really interesting. The entry for vermin in the online Oxford Dictionary defines vermin as wild animals that are believed to be harmful to crops, farm animals or game. Back to game again. Back to game again. We are being persuaded by landowners, by managers, that foxes are vermin. Because they kill birds that they then want to be paid to kill. There we have it. There we have this whole way that foxes have become demonised. And again, that's putting a value on them. I went to a wonderful um, conference by the Wild Animal Welfare Committee. uh, um, That was set up partly by um, Libby Anderson, who used to run One Kind in Scotland. You're smiling because I'm sure sure you met Libby. She's brilliant. They were talking about this value-based language and really put it in, t- in terms and that I kind of suddenly went, you know, I haven't been asking these questions. You know, we're not criticising anyone in these podcasts. We're I'm not criticising ar- people who hunt foxes. Oh, we, we sure are criticising them. What <laughs> I'm saying is we're not criticising anyone who hasn't thought about this before because it's That's become fair. so entrenched, it's so normal that we don't ask questions. We do need to start asking these questions and that's part of what we're trying to do here. Oh, so how did they manage to convince us all over hundreds of years that ganging up against an animal many times smaller than themselves and making it almost impossibly difficult for that animal to escape a sport? You know I have a theory about this. By repeating it over and over again until, like weeds, it became an accepted fact. By saying it with the authority that owning land or horses or a pack of hounds used to bring, and by hanging from a tree anyone who dared to disagree with them. Though I may have made that last one up. (laughs) It sounds plausible though, doesn't it? I'm afraid it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Basically, vermin can mean anything we want it to mean. And when it comes to fox hunting, when it comes to the war on wildlife, it is simply a value put on wildlife that says it is fine to kill that animal. Even if it means breaking the law even if it means breaking law. We're going to look at that in a future episode about wildlife crime, actually. That social change, social attitudes take a long time to change. We've said that before about how has Hen Harry Day changed anything? It is changing. It, it takes time. We should never be discouraged by the fact that rat persecution hasn't stopped. Driven grass shooting hasn't stopped yet. Fox hunting hasn't stopped yet. Trophy hunting, which we'll talk about, hasn't stopped yet takes a long time to change things. We will get there. We need to get there. Yeah. We need and to we, get we, there. This is something we, we do a lot. We do it a lot. We, we rarely question it because it's so ingrained to put this low or almost non-existent value on these animals because that's the language that's 
been used for so long to describe them. We often don't ask ourselves who decided that value in the first place and, and why. Along those same lines, and still relevant to fox hunting, hunts and hunting lobbyists like to talk about the need to manage the countryside. Yeah, they're always talking about the need to manage the countryside, to restore balance. How well has that been going? Yeah, let's, let's just look at how well they have managed our countryside. This isn't necessarily hunts, of course, but these are these... People who have taken upon themselves to be the guardians of the countryside. It's a well-known phrase, the custodians of the countryside, the land managers. So let's give some facts about the state of the UK's countryside then, shall we? Under this management. Let's go for it. Okay, well, the UK is one of the most nature-depleted countries in the world. As Charlie said earlier, it's 189th out of 218. More than one in seven native species face extinction and more than half, 56%, 56% of our native species are in decline. And as a nation, we are going to miss all of our biodiversity 2020 targets. The UK experienced the biggest declines in farm and birds of any European country during 1970 to 1990. In late summer, the 50 million non-native pheasants released by countryside managers comprise around half the total bird biomass in the UK. That's the weight of all the birds in the UK. In terms of weight, we have more non-native birds to shoot than we do have wild birds. Um, Wildlife crime, and this is something you're very hot on, is depressing populations of many of our birds of prey who are quite simply being managed out of existence. And we've removed 97% of our wildflower meadows in 60 years. And our gardens could be the equivalent of wildflower meadows, but we are told they're full of weeds. Get rid of them. And loads of people are now using artificial grass even. Yeah, artificial grass. Shocking. I think that might be a topic for another podcast. Carry on. (laughs) One of the targets of countryside managers is the badger. A citizen science project at Cardiff University receives around 10,000 reports of roadkill badgers per year, and they report 90% of people in the UK have never seen a live badger. That's a staggering fact. It's so sad when you think that probably almost everybody will have seen a dead one. Yeah. And tied into all this, um, talking about weeds, many populations of insect pollinators from bees to hoverflies, butterflies and moths are in free fall. And in case you're wondering if all of this is true, it totally is, by the way. It is totally true. Yeah, look it up online because it's all there. Yeah. And how are foxes themselves doing, you might ask? Well, contrary to popular misconception, there is no evidence that fox populations have, in quotes, exploded since the ban. Which we were told was going to happen to fox populations. Yes, indeed. There's no data to suggest that the 2004 Hunting Act has had any significant impact on national fox numbers. And the circumstantial evidence suggests that any slack left in the wake of the hunt has been taken up enthusiastically, um, as you and I know, by gamekeepers and farmers shooting more foxes because they might have banned hunting with hounds. Shooting foxes is still perfectly legal and goes on all the time. It certainly does. And what one of the consequences of this, if you remove dog foxes from an area, so that's the male, who know the area really well, you're actually opening the door to younger, less experienced foxes that are more likely to predate easy food sources like pheasants because they don't know where to find the food. And this causes the problems that other sectors of the blood sports fraternity say need fixing. Yeah, yeah. So they are creating a problem that they then say they need to manage by wiping out foxes. In order to maintain a balance that they've thrown offset. Yeah, far from restoring balance in some some nebulous way. Fox hunting, as ecologists expect and have explained many times, it actually upsets the natural balance. It's it's a war on wildlife that has no winners apart from the game bird industry. Before we move on, a final thought on fox hunting. Hounds don't naturally chase foxes. They've been trained to do it. Yeah, we, we train animals to kill other animals, which is quite a shocking way when you look at it like that, isn't it? One element of training the hounds to kill is rarely discussed. It's what used to be known as cubbing, but is now more euphemistically called autumn hunting. Again, a lot of people do not know about this. I think it's one of the most disgraceful aspects of fox hunting. And it is illegal. It's totally illegal. Absolutely illegal. illegal. Absolutely illegal. Every August, September and October, hunts 
wearing tweeds rather than the traditional red coat. So they're, they're actually, you can easily recognize them once you know what you're looking for. They encircle woods or coverts as they call them, and they flush fox cubs to the hounds. You'll see them encircling these woods and coverts and they, they slap their saddles if they see a fox coming out. They want to drive the fox cubs back into the hounds. Oh, it's awful. It's an unbelievably horrible thing. They are training dogs to kill foxes by using fox cubs. And they call it autumn hunting because even the blood sports enthusiasts themselves realise that calling something cubbing would revolt most people. Yeah, yeah. so they now call it autumn hunting. Or even, now that most of us have cottoned on to what autumn hunting is, they call it exercising the hounds. So, I mean, it really is, it really is about language and how we use language and how we disguise what we're doing or be euphemistic so we're softening our language i mean it's it's around us all the time we've got to start asking questions what these what these words actually mean and why they're being used so true so true and if you'd like more information on this try the hunt saboteurs association website or just google fox hunting there's just so much information online yep and um Finally, if you're going to have a war, a war on wildlife, you need an enemy. And you need an enemy that's not only the wildlife, but you need um, you need an enemy in the terms of the people who are trying to stop it. People like you and me. People uh, like people listening to this. The extremists. The extremists. The snowflake. We've both been called extremists. It's all over the press. It's, it's how now hunting and shooting lobbyists turn anyone who disagrees with them no matter how mildly you're just an extremist and it's a term of absolute dismissal but it means absolutely nothing it's Um, so true an extremist is someone who does something completely extreme yeah out so far outside the normal that it's extreme behavior but by saying that what you're doing is wrong because it's illegal and also because it is damaging our wildlife and has welfare implications we're extreme yeah we're not the ones shooting wildlife, chasing wildlife, poisoning wildlife, abusing wildlife. We're just trying to stop the people who are, and we, we are the extremists. It's absolute nonsense. It is. It is. So, Charlie. Yes. I know how much you hate the term extremists. I think you've made that super, super clear. But <laughs> what's your solution? Because you've got an idea to help solve this. Well, I, I, have, I have got this idea, and I'm calling it the I Spartacus moment i spartacus yeah have you seen the i spartacus film no oh well essentially a slave it was during during the roman era who became a leading gladiator and then decided actually he didn't want to do this anymore and he rebelled and when they came looking for spartacus a group of them were confronted by roman legionaries and said which one of you is spartacus and spartacus was about to come forward when his followers went, I'm Spartacus. And then someone over on the other side of the group went, no, I'm Spartacus. Oh, wow. And I think, I think we should all stand up and say, yes, I'm an extremist. Own the word. Because once everyone is an extremist, by definition, no one is. (laughs) If we're all extremists, then that's the norm. And Term's completely devalued. It's completely devalued. It's completely devalued. That's a good idea. I like that. It's an well, whether everyone will go along with it. I'll be interested to see whether people agree with that, because at the at the moment it's just bandied around so ridiculously. We are the good people here. I'm utterly convinced about it. We are the good people. And we'd love to know your thoughts on the term extremist and whether you think Charlie's I extremist movement should take off because I'm well up for <laughs> oh, that. The I extremist movement, that's better than the I, I Spartacus movement or the I Spartacus movement. Yeah, the I extremist movement. Let's see that on Twitter. Okay, um, <laughs> almost the last word for this particular episode goes to our second um Correspondent, respondent to the question, is there a war on wildlife? And this is Mac McCartney. He's an international speaker, a writer and change maker. He was mentored by indigenous people over many years. He's acquired profound and original insights. This is his website saying this, but I actually I agree with it. Into questions preoccupying 
many contemporary leaders, and I could almost add, and podcasters talking about the war on wildlife. So does he think there's a war on wildlife and what does he suggest we do? So I, I believe it's, it's almost worse than that. It's a war on life. It's a war on our children. It's a war on the poor and dispossessed and sidelined of our society. And it's a profoundly self-harming story because it's also a war even on those who feel privileged and imagine themselves to be uh, well off. So I feel it's like a collective self-harming story that we have we're now inhabiting, walking towards the cliff edge, for the large part completely unconscious and unaware of what, what's happening. War on wildlife undoubtedly. You would have thought from all the conversations that were happening, for instance, when I was 15, uh, I'm now 70, when I was 15, I remember the whole conversations around our dining table, around soil, mm. around pesticides, insecticides and herbicides, around all kinds of issues oh. which have been resurfacing endlessly for the last number of decades yeah. and yet still we're in the place that we are. To my mind, and, and, I, and I, I do think war is a term that could be used, but ultimately I think it is about finding whatever strategies we can to become on a personal and ultimately collective level deeply peaceful. Yet, that does not mean passive. So to be activists, but activists with open hearts, resisting the temptation to see the world in terms of them and us, openly and wholeheartedly and generously and warmly walking towards all the places where we need to engage but without all the negative associations that we would normally put of going into battle and I really profoundly believe this if, if we could just take as an example imagine all the political debates that we've heard on TV in the last three years have we ever heard somebody say something like well that's a really good point I haven't thought of that I have to go away and think about that. Yeah. And we'll have to terminate this interview a little sooner than thought. Only hear people head-butting each other using a, a menu of facts, mm. which we can now just draw on whatever facts we want to justify we want to say. Truly standing, saying, let's resolve this mm -hmm. and disregard who's going to win mm -hmm. or who's, you know, any of these ridiculous questions mm. and say we are in this together to try to find a path forward that will allow all people in our society and all creatures within nature to exist in a way that either we never have before or at the very possibility might once have done a very, very, very long time ago. Mac McCartney there, I love that phrase of his, it's a war on life and a profoundly self-harming story. He's absolutely right. The war on wildlife isn't just about the war on wildlife. We're all involved. It affects all of us. It's that old saying, isn't it? At what point is it going to really take the last tree to be chopped down that we understand that money, we can't breathe from money? Absolutely. Interestingly, he said there he'd been having these same conversations for many, many years. And I think there's a real uptick at the moment. And that's being inspired by Extinction Rebellion, by climate strike. These are not new ideas, essentially, but they're coming into focus. They're coming to the forefront of people's minds. They are. They're becoming popular. Um, so there we go. Wow. We've looked at fox hunting, which we deeply despise. It is illegal. And I do believe it's part of the war on wildlife. It's horrific. It just, it makes me so angry. And like you say, this is an illegal practice and it should remain illegal. Keep the ban. Keep the ban. And we can help keep the ban by pressuring our MPs. Um, I read today actually was coming in that um, our new Prime Minister Boris Johnson has once again, I saw a quote saying he, he was in favour of fox hunting. I don't know whether he's in favour in the Theresa May way of being in favour and that she doesn't really mind it or that he would actively seek to repeal the hunting act. I personally don't think he will try and repeal the hunting act because it will simply not get through. 
it is the one issue that Conservative MPs said when Theresa May made that in 2017. Their mailboxes were flooded. We can all stop this happening. I, I really hope you're right. I really hope you're right. And um, also, I'm not even convinced that um, Boris Johnson will remain our Prime Minister for as long as it takes for this podcast to come out. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's see how that works, shall we? Yeah, and you can tell us now on our new Twitter feed. We have at war on wildlife. I'd like to give actually a huge thank you to Team for Nature, which put out a tweet asking people to follow this new account. And I think when they put it out, we had three followers <laughs> overnight. That went up to 200. It, of course, it's small. It, we, the podcast hasn't been out for very long that the channel is new but thank you team for nature for getting us out there yes thank you very much and please 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 share us far and wide and give us feedback let us know what you think and also what you think about the term war on wildlife yeah and if you'd like some more um information on what we've been talking about today we've got some links for you um the War on Wildlife podcast, of course, is available on iTunes. That's our first episode, and this will be on iTunes. And you can find out more about the Hunt Saboteurs Association, which Lush is proud to support, at huntsabs.org.uk. Yeah, there's the League Against Cruel Sports at league.org.uk. And there's the Hunt Investigation Team at huntinvestigationteam.org. And another resource which I use quite a lot is, is Hounds Off which is at houndsoff.co.uk. Great name, great name. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Charlie. That's, that was... Uh, it's flown by. It has flown by. It has flown it by. It really has flown yeah. by. And I'm sure people listening to this will go, well, why didn't you mention this? Why didn't you mention that? Because essentially no one's going to listen to a three-hour podcast. <laughs> We're trying to keep it out till now. Yeah. I really hope people got something out of that. Um, as Ruth just said, I would love to know what people are thinking about our approach and the war and wildlife in general. Absolutely. We'd love to know your thoughts on the term war on wildlife. See you soon. Cheers for now. The War on Wildlife podcast is hosted by Ruth Pesey and Charlie Moores and is part of the War on Wildlife project from Lush. We'd like to thank Jill Lewis and Mac McCartney for the answers they gave to the war on wildlife question that we used in this episode. Jill's website is at jilllewis.com and Mac's website is at macmccartney.com. We'd also like to thank Jack Riggle for his comments during the edit stage. In the next episode, we'll be looking at the badger cull and effective campaigning. For more information, links and suggestions to help tackle the war on wildlife, please go to waronwildlife.co.uk which is still under construction at the time of recording this, but future listeners will hopefully find it useful. And you can follow us on Twitter right now at War on Wildlife. You can find this podcast series on Lush Player or subscribe to it on iTunes at the War on Wildlife podcast. And as a last thought, you can get involved in tackling the War on Wildlife with a couple of quick clicks by signing the following two e-petitions on the government's website. Ban-driven grouse shooting, willful blindness is no longer an option, and repeal the Archaic Weeds Act 1959 to benefit pollinators and wider biodiversity.